Hello and welcome to this latest uh, Money on Politics podcast. And this one features a column that first appeared on Broadsheet on April the 12th. Uh, this followed a week of disturbances and incidents across the north, though I actually prim- primarily talk about the attacks by the loyalist gangs along the Peace Wall in West Belfast. Now, the cause of these riots are complex, and they have many immediate and proximate causes. Now, while there are sinister loyalist paramilitary elements who saw this as an opportunity to make trouble for the PSNI, particularly one that had, had enjoyed recent successes in thwarting the loyalist drug dealing operations, and also at a time when the unionist leaders were attacking the PSNI and calling for the resignation of the chief constable. The fact is that many of the teenagers and the youths in the streets would probably misguidedly see themselves as fighting for their community, their people, and their allegiance. But that allegiance goes increasingly unreciprocated by the state to which they do declare their loyalty. Here's the piece. As the riots raged along the peace walls in Belfast last week, I spotted a tweet bemoaning the absence of loyalist leaders of the calibre of the late David Irvine. David was the avuncular, savvy leader of the, the loyalist Progressive Unionist Party. He was aptly described by the then Northern Ireland Secretary, John Reid, as possibly one of the most eloquent politicians in Northern Ireland. It was a justified claim. Unfortunately, David Irvine died tragically young, aged just only 43, of a brain hemorrhage in January 2007. Speaking at the time, the then Taoiseach Bertie Ahern called him a courageous politician who sought to channel the energies of loyalism in a positive political direction. Now, I don't claim to have known David particularly well, though I did meet him several occasions and indeed debated against him in UCD before an audience of US, US political students, or politics students. He, during that debate, he was characteristically witty and it, and even his presence demonstrated a willingness to engage and debate the future of the North, a willingness that showed his confidence in his identity and his position. And that's not something you could say about many in today's unionism and loyalism. That day in UCD, Irvine told the story of his 1975 encounter in Longcash Prison with the then UVF leader, Gusty Spence. Irvine had just been jailed for uh, attempting to transport a bomb across Belfast. When he met Spence, Spence wasted no time in the conversation. Why are you here? he asked Irvine. Because I was caught, says Irvine. No, said Spence. Why are you here? I was fighting for Ulster, Irvine then replied. Spence puffed on his pipe and said, No, no, no. Why are you here? As I recall, Irvine said that he and Spence went through this for a few more rounds before he realised that Gusty was trying to get him to question his own attitudes and beliefs. He was getting to, 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 to flesh out why it was he was in prison and what had brought him there. Spence was also inviting him to see that working class Protestants were no better off than working class Catholics and thus recognised the futility of the loyalist and Republican campaigns in what could any, only ever be a zero-sum game. If you get a chance, uh, read Roy Garland's two th- 2001 biography of Gusty Spence, because on pages 192 and 193, there's a more detailed and a more nuanced account of this exchange. By the way, that book was launched by David Irvine. I mentioned David Irvine not because he would have been the solution to today's problems, but because his absence encapsulates what is missing in unionism and loyalism, informed and confident leadership. Okay, let me be clear. 
I'm not suggesting for even a millisecond that the teenagers wound up by sinister elements and loyalism are lobbing petrol bombs into the back gardens of their Catholic neighbours because they have some fundamental objection to the Northern Ireland Protocol or to the three levels of sanitary and phytosanitary checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Clearly they don't. Those who are closer to the situation tell me that last week's troubles at Lanark Way have their origins in recent PSNI successes against the drug operations of certain loyalist gangs. My question here is, who is going to ask the youths the question that Spence repeatedly posed to Irvine? The why are you here? Why were you doing this? Now, if somebody does pose the question, I doubt that the young people will answer that they were protesting the drug seizures. Is it not more likely that it will be that, that they were there to fight against the Fenians for Ulster, so that their people could have control over their country, their community and their street? Given the considerable dialing up of the Unionist political rhetoric on the Northern Ireland Protocol and looking at the events in the aftermath of the Bobby Story funeral, it is impossible to argue that what happened in Belfast is entirely disconnected from what has been happening in other places across the North, such as the illegal Loyalist band parades in Ballymena, Portadown and Market Hill. The parade organisers there are forthright in saying that their marches are a protest against the Northern Ireland Protocol and a decision not to protest senior Sinn Féin figures who attended the story funeral. So, how can those those unionist leaders who've been whipping up anger on these two particular issues, the same people who've called on the PSNI chief constable to resign, calmly condone these illegal protests and then condemn what's happening in Belfast? Yet isn't that what Arlene Foster attempted to do in her Twitter response last Wednesday? Yes, she did call it vandalism, and attempted murder, and she did state unequivocally that it did not represent unions and loyalism. But how credible is this when you, when only a few weeks earlier she was meeting with the representatives of the loyalist paramilitaries to find common cause on the protocol? How can her condemnations be taken as authentic and consistent when she goes on to say that the action she condemns only served to take the focus off the real lawbreakers in Sinn Féin? How can any political leader, let alone a first minister, stand over a statement that starts out by calling a vandalism an attempted murder, but ends up saying that it is not demons who are the real lawbreakers. Either they're vandals or they're not. Their culpability, culpability is not diminished by the blameworthiness of senior Sinn Féin figures who flagrantly breached COVID rules. I've no doubt that last week's riots genuinely distressed the First Minister, but I'd be surprised if some of her upset didn't come from some way in her seeing that her words from the previous weeks might have helped whip up those disaffected and volatile young men to think that they must fight back against those who they're being repeatedly told are hell-bent on weakening Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom. Across Arlene Foster's time as First Minister, we see that she is at her best when she tries to speak as the First Minister of all of Northern Ireland, and she's at her worst when she speaks as the leader of unionism alone or as the leader of a faction of the DUP. Last weekend, we rightly championed the success of the Good Friday Agreement. But we should also remember that it has not been a panacea for all of the North's ills. Despite increased investment into the North, the economic benefits have been pitifully slow to trickle down and improve the lives of those living in marginalised communities, particularly those along the interfaces. It would be naive not to see this as a contributory factor to this week's violence. The other problem is how allegiance to the sovereign power is now proving to be a problem for both communities. The zero-sum game of, well, if they are winning, we must be losing, no longer dominates. 
While the Nationalist Republican community still has difficulty having allegiance to a state that finds their presence problematic, unionism also has a problem. It is a growing problem as the state to which unionism and loyalism shows allegiance, A, increasingly declines to reciprocate that loyalty, and B, is itself increasingly coming apart. We saw a pained expression of this growing frustration last January when Ian Paisley Jr. plaintively asked Tory MPs, quote, what do we do to the members on those benches over there to be screwed over by this protocol? End quote. He didn't get an answer. Unionism has never been more disrespected or shoddily treated than it is by the current occupant of 10 Downing Street. The Guardian's Nick Cohen puts this point in a historical context in an excellent analysis piece from last February. While last December I was warning here that Boris Johnson's duplicity would not end at Brexit, saying, and I quote, Boris Johnson's duplicity is no respecter of alliances or relationships. Even the DUP must realise by now that they cannot trust Boris Johnson any more than Dublin or Brussels can trust him. Perhaps the DUP does grasp this. And perhaps the problem is that its leadership is now so compromised by its past fidelity to Johnson that it just can't act on it. So, we seem destined to repeat the mistakes of the past. Mistakes that could well see the Northern Ireland institutions, the Executive and the Assembly, stumble along, teetering on the edge of collapse. Now, this does not mean we are going back to the bad old days from before the Good Friday Agreement. But it could mean we are back in the the, the one-step-forward, one-step-back choreography that plagued the first decade of the agreement's implementation. Over the weekend, several former Northern Ireland Secretaries of State urged the British government to take the situation there more seriously, saying that the British government had, and I quote, allowed this to degenerate to the most serious crisis for a quarter of a century, end of quote. One of them, Labour's Peter Haynes, said, Compared with the attention Blair, Major and Brown gave to Northern Ireland, it has been treated with casual indifference. While another, Peter Mandelson, also Labour, accused Johnson of duplicity in his handling of the Northern Ireland Protocol and warned that Johnson must show more candour engagement. The criticism is fair and measured, but the remedy does not lie in the British government acting alone. The history of Northern Ireland since the 1970s has taught us that progress can only be made when the two governments act and speak together. It is therefore vital that the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, established by the Good Friday Agreement, meet to allow UK and Irish ministers' work to help each other to de-escalate the rising political tensions in Northern Ireland. Though reports in the Sunday Observer were were suggesting that Number 10 is resisting such calls, and these are very, very worrying, though in fairness it does appear that Minister Coveney has been travelling and that these things might happen. The other thing that's worrying is what's happening in West Belfast, Carrickfergus and Newton Abbey. And the suggestion that what's happening there should make nationalist politicians and commentators think twice before engaging in idle chatter about the imminence of a united Ireland. To quote one Irish political commentator from, from Friday week back. Okay, leaving aside the gratuitously loaded phrase, it's idle chatter. The assertion is akin to King Canute standing at the water's edge and commanding the tide to turn back, though in King Canute's defence he at least did do it to show the limits of his power. Menion and unionism have believed for months that a border poll referendum is imminent, not because political leaders, academics and policy makers here are considering what United Ireland might look like, but because they see what has been happening across Britain post-Brexit. Informed unionism knows 
that what happens in Edinburgh, Cardiff and London will have a bigger impact on political life in Northern Ireland than what's said in Dublin and Brussels for the next while. They also know that next month's Scottish parliamentary elections, where the 30-day polling average has the SNP on over 50%, is of critical and immediate importance to the future of the UK Union, especially as the SNP is unapologetically fighting the election under the banner of, quote, Scotland's future must be Scotland's choice and nobody else's. What happens in Edinburgh, Cardiff and London over the next 12 to 18 months will have huge ramifications on what happens in Northern Ireland and that, inevitably, will have huge implications for what happens to us and the rest of this island. That's the discussion that the Taoiseach Michal Martin and his successor should now be preparing to have with Boris Johnson. And any suggestion that we should not be thinking and preparing for that range of eventualities is not just nonsense. It is effectively a call for political dereliction. Listen, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back next week with another podcast. Goodbye.